This is episode 179 of Logomora for February 27th, 2016. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Alohomora, MuggleNet.com's global reread of the Harry Potter series. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Allison Sigurd. And I'm Kristen Keyes. And today we have a special guest, Micah, uh, who has been on the show six times already. So you guys probably already know him, but why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself again? Sure. Uh, I'm actually kind of disappointed. I was hoping my final time would be the seventh time on the show. (laughs) But clearly it hasn't worked out that way, and I'm going to have to come back before all is said and done. Well, if if you can't get on any of the scheduled episodes, you can always pop into the movie chat, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, (laughs) I think think it has to happen. But, you know, I've, uh, as Kristen mentioned, I mean, I've really enjoyed being on the show over the last couple of years. It says that I've been here for every book but the first two. Uh, so I don't know what I was doing while, while you guys were <laughs> going through the first two books, but uh, I'm happy to be here. Um, That's okay, because none of us were on the first two books. Yeah, <laughs> oh, okay. So we're, we're all on the same boat. Okay, well, in that case, in that case, um, I'm, I'm probably... The least controversial of, of any guest host that's ever appeared. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You were universally beloved by the all of our listeners. So. I mean, you don't know anything about Harry Potter, but we <laughs> well, But they forgave that. They forgave that. It is kind of funny, listeners. Um, if you if you're if you're new the, to the joke, Mike <laughs> Mike has been doing this for a while. And uh, if you check check out our iTunes reviews, if you want to find out more about what we're talking about, there's a gradual kind of hilarious shift in the reviews from "Oh my God, Micah, why do you have him on the show?" to "Oh my God, I love Micah. He's so he knows so much about Harry Potter. He's so funny." So uh, make sure and check those out. I, I haven't done podcasting for over ten years or, or anything <laughs> like that, or done multiple podcasts. No. And not even a Harry Pod Harry Potter. No. No. I've never read the books. It's no. my first time reading <laughs> Deathly Hallows, uh, and uh, I'm hoping I can be adequate. All right. Well, I mean, we'll see. We'll see how it goes with this week's chapter, which is uh, chapter 28 of Deathly Hallows, The Missing Mirror. Uh, listeners, make sure and take a look at that chapter um, and read it in full before listening to the show to get the full listening experience from our show today but before we get into that chapter we're gonna go and recap some comments from our last chapter which you guys had a lot of comments and a lot of good comments (laughs) so you make my job hard (laughs) (laughs) but it's good so our first one today is from hufflepuff skein who says i'd never paid much attention to the title of this chapter until the funny outtakes at the end of this episode and it made me think about circle theory The final hiding place could also relate to the shack on the island that is Vernon's last attempt to keep Harry away from the letters and from Hogwarts in Philosopher's Stone, Stone, Sorcerer's Stone. Hagrid comes and takes Harry away to where? Diagon Alley and Principal Lee Gringotts, thus the reverse of this book. Another fun circular connection that helps us recall and deepen our understanding of Harry's journey. 
Originally, this type of literary structure was used to reinforce important aspects of a narrative for a reader and also to create a comforting feeling of having started from some place, gone on an adventure, and returned to the starting point. Perhaps we feel some unconscious comfort that it will be okay because he's been through this before, if in reverse. That's a really neat idea. I know you guys were talking about that because I, I always just read that the final hiding place chapter title is just kind of a as a surface thing like yep this is like the last place they get to be before they can yeah before they have to go to war so it's, it was really interesting hearing that last week that you you all were digging so deep into the chapter title to kind of find more meaning to it than just that yeah i like the idea of it it's a comforting thing like i don't know if we've ever brought up before that circle theory kind of like as a reader, it's a comforting thing to be coming all the way back around into the, um, in the kind of journey. So I liked that. Yeah, the, the, well, I th- I think that's kind of what's makes Deathly Hallows, in you know, in, in in many ways it is not, but in many ways it is very satisfying when you do have those recalls to book one and book two. Um, and that they're not just they're not just peppered in just because like they actually play such important roles in the story, um, like the fact that as you guys talked about um, in the previous weeks how the you know the dragons in in Gringotts were that that literally just started as kind of a meant to be taken as a rumor by Hagrid like oh they say there's dragons down there but nobody really knows <laughs> and lo and behold we rode on the back of a dragon out of Gringotts to escape. Um, so yeah, I can, I can kind of see that idea of the comfort. So our next comment is from Buckbeak is my spirit animal who says, so about Gringotts some more. One, I think they definitely pay for vaults. If we count this at the wizarding world in line for escape from Gringotts, there are signs advertising the levels and cost of the vaults. I don't remember the actual costs, but that for sure suggests that people are paying for them. Two, I think Gringotts put the enchantments on the contents of the vaults. I think the wizards who work there could have possibly put some sort of latent charm on them, and then the goblins just did a simple activation thing throughout the whole of Gringotts. This would also let the thief's downfall move, because people would be pissed to go through that every time to get to their vault, and let you not burn yourself on multiplying treasure when you enter your own vault. I think the first thing we need to mention is that we're not entirely sure if the theme park is technically taken as canon, but I never noticed that, so I thought that was a really interesting thing to notice. Um, oh, yeah, I noticed that when mm-hmm. I was there because I actually went to a... You, you know how that section where you can go talk to the goblin? Um, oh, I forgot about that. Did you get that on yeah. video? Please tell me you did. Oh, I did. It's on, it's on, there is video of that. And did you buy a vault? Is that where this is going? I, well, I went in... And I told him that I wanted a dragon guarded vault, but they said on the sign that they all of their dragon guarded vaults were currently full, and I was very disappointed. And I <laughs> asked him if there would be any openings, and he just answered by saying something generic about, "If you want to open an account, please visit the main area of Gringotts." And I was like, "Well, thanks a lot for no help at all." <laughs> So I wanted to use much color, more colorful language than that. Um, but 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 yeah, there are signs that do list prices, and that's a gray area for me to use the Wizarding World as proof because yeah. Rowling does approve all of the signage in the Wizarding World, but it's not necessarily book canon because there's so much of the movies incorporated into that. I mm-hmm. do think there's an implication that 
you do have to pay for the higher security vaults. I as I assume that. Just I would because, assume so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're getting dragons. Trying to make some kind of money. Quinnegotch <laughs> <laughs> just gives everything away from free and, and yeah. doesn't profit at all. Um, well, and, and that uh, to the second point about the enchantments, I was actually really surprised that um, pretty much all of you um, were uh, on the opposite side of Eric with the. You're surprised. I, I, I am on that one. <laughs> I'm going to stand one. by that, though. Well, actually, because there was another listener who left a comment, and I don't remember who, uh, which listener it was, so I apologize. Um, but uh, there was a listener from uh, there who commented that um, the uh, kind of the, the the they that um, Grip Hook refers to Grip Hook also refers to they when he is specifically. And more obviously talking about the goblins. Um, there was another quoted instance that the listener brought up. Oh, yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, and now I'm so... going to prove it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, I think there was another thing in that. There was another piece in that comment that confirmed, because I know you guys were talking too, do the Grin Gods goblins. Can goblins do magic? And Ron confirms that in the Shell Cottage chapter, I think, when they're talking to Griphook. Um, because he says, well, goblins can do magic too that they don't share. And Griphook counters that by saying, that's not the point. Um, so goblins can do magic. And I think that's been implied throughout the series that goblins have similar magic to house elves. Definitely. Um, so I I always assumed that they were the ones who put the enchantments on the vaults because that, to me, seems like another thing that you pay for um, mm-hmm. as added security to your vault. See, that's why they are the ones who work there and not wizards. Yeah. They're magic. But, okay, that comment that we were talking about, those days are a full two pages apart. (laughs) So, I don't know. I have a hard time believing they're talking about the same thing. Um, Just because he specifically, like we talked about last week, he specifically says it's these curses. Mm -hmm. And curses are usually implied to need a wand see i always just thought that like just like house elves goblins have magic that not only is different from wizards but in some ways could possibly be more advanced um and that like they don't i I think because we you guys talked about this too that um hermione mentioned specifically that you know the she basically says that that idea that you know the the victors are the ones who write history Mm-hmm. Um and uh and, and she references goblins kind of were a victim of that. And goblins tend to be discounted in the Harry Potter world. Uh maybe not perhaps as much as house elves because the the goblin rebellions are often mentioned in the in the story as kind of like a side point. And you know, if you read Fantastic Beasts, listeners, you'll realize that the goblin rebellions are like something that seem to actually really heavily underlie the, the, the Harry Potter history, like the Wizarding World history, um, there's a lot of that that kind of just keeps creeping up, and it's interesting because I think Rowling probably has a fairly pat down idea of what happened during the Goblin Rebellions. They're making a movie um, about that, right? Fantastic Beasts. <laughs> so I've heard. I mean, I don't know if there's anybody actually, you know, important in it or anything like that. But, but yeah, no. I'm just, you know, I, I want to make sure that I contribute my knowledge on. <laughs> well, what else have you, what news. else have you heard about 
about that news, Micah? Uh, I've I've heard the movie is going to be released uh, later this year. I don't know if that's true, but and, th- and that there's a trailer that's been released for it as well. <laughs> I mean, maybe we'll have to Google it, I guess. Uh-huh. But I will. Uh, but I will say I, I like your points. I believe in in God magic as well. I think that it's <laughs> very strong. You believe, you believe in goblin magic? That's good. Clap if you believe in goblin magic. No, no, just gob magic. They, you know, they wanted it to sound cool. <laughs> oh, oh, I thought maybe you were talking about gobstones, which is an entirely different thing altogether. Which you would know is, if you'd read Harry Potter, Micah. No, well, I, 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 well, I was. I'm not going to even expand upon my thoughts about gobstones. I'm just going to leave it there <laughs> and what they could possibly be, but. our next comment comes from short fingers but lovely who says i always wondered when reading this chapter how much those fits of rage from voldemort actually damage the support voldemort gets from his followers lucius and narcissa for example seem to realize that because of the those impulsive actions voldemort is not able to maintain his power forever I wonder if even Bellatrix has second thoughts about Voldemort's credibility, at least in the moment when she, his most faithful servant, has to escape the room to not be killed. I think that at the time the Battle of Hogwarts starts, a lot of Death Eaters are actually so intimidated by Voldemort that they don't fight because they actually believe in their cause, unlike the side of the Order, and are only fighting to save their own skin and spare their families of any wrath that Voldemort might have when he finds out that they haven't fought properly. If the Battle of Hogwarts hadn't happened and Voldemort had kept on ruling longer, is it possible that he would have faced a rebellion from inside the Death Eaters? Maybe not even because they realize that their beliefs are ridiculous, but because enough Death Eaters realize that other people would be a better fit to lead the Death Eaters. Maybe someone who isn't so focused on killing a teenager and who doesn't kill dozens of people just because they give him bad news. That's interesting because I'm I'm immediately thinking, of course, we've been mentioning it every almost every episode. But, you know, the the idea of, of course, Hitler and the Nazis and they were in power for quite a long time, even though their beliefs were ridiculous and that there were many people who um, there were plenty of Nazis who became disillusioned during that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And Hitler still maintained power. There were plenty of people who um, reached their limits of what they were willing to do. Mm hmm. Um, and that still managed to be, I mean, that to me, it's like this comment in in a way almost summarizes why Voldemort is successful, not why he would have fallen apart. Um, cause he's, he's controlling his followers through fear. So that makes sense to me that he would actually maintain that power. And in the case of somebody like, like with Lucius and Narcissa, it's not so much that they're put off by Voldemort. They are put off by Voldemort as a whole, but that's not really because of his fits of rage. That's more because he specifically targeted their son. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, more due to the family aspect. Yeah, yeah. There's. I think that's more the bond issue. And as far as Bellatrix goes, I'm pretty sure that her loyalty did not waver after that incident. In fact, if anything, I'm pretty sure that would just strengthen her, re- you know, resolve to stay with Voldemort and work with him. Yeah, I I, I agree. I, I don't see any of the Death Eaters sort of rising up 
in his place or trying to overtake him because you mentioned the fact that they're there because they're fearful of him. Even when they all come back in, in Goblet of Fire, for the most part, many of them are there out of fear. And, and you know, if, if they didn't really believe in his cause, I don't think they ever would have returned. So mm-hmm. th- to me, he is the epitome of evil. It's not to say that there aren't other evil campaigns out there that some of these people could have joined but at the time he was the guy that these people rallied around but in terms of fits of rage uh if if i were a death eater and i saw what had happened i i probably would have some second thoughts and and think it's probably time to you know maybe go to another country for a few <laughs> weeks until this all gets resolved extended vacation well, and we do have an example of a Death Eater who did completely turn around. That would be Regulus Black. So, and attempted to take Voldemort down on his own. And what he did, did end up kind of bringing Voldemort down, thanks to Harry's continued work with that. So, there is an element to this comment that is correct in that way. Um, but I think, too, the issue is that Voldemort is promising his followers stuff and i don't know if voldemort could even truly make good on all of his promises or even intends to give his followers everything that they want i mentioned in a previous episode that voldemort is happy to dispose of people when they're no longer useful to him Mm -hmm. um but you know by the point that i think by the point that that would be happening voldemort would already have the power he craved and wanted and he would you know ostensibly in this in that situation be invincible anyway well, listeners, that is the end of our recap comments for this actual episode. But we are going to have one more on our special bonus app feature. Um, it's a pretty long comment, so we decided to take it out of the actual episode and put it on there. So go ahead and listen, or go on to our main site, alovemora.mugnet.com, to read all of the fabulous comments that were left this week. All right, next we're going to go into the podcast question of the week responses. But before we go into that, let me remind you of the question from last week. We finally found out where the final Horcrux is hidden, and it's at Hogwarts. Lord Voldemort, in his arrogance, thinks that he is the only one who has plumbed the deepest secrets of Hogwarts to find the room of hidden things. So how exactly did Tom Riddle find the room of requirement, and how did it present itself to him? What about the room secured his trust in its implied absolute secrecy. So our first comment comes from Dream Galleon 88 and they say, The room of requirement, according to Hermione, who is the first-rate source, is known as the come-and-go room. The room of requirement only appears when a person has real need of it and is always equipped with the seeker's needs. Therefore, Tom Riddle could have been passing by a random Hogwarts hallway one day thinking about how he needed a secret place to practice and learn about dark magic, and the Room of Requirement could have then appeared. The room isn't supposed to reveal itself for only good or bad wizards, as it is used by both Harry Potter and Draco Malfoy, so there's no guarantee that the room didn't provide a secret base of operations for Riddle to study dark magic books and practice dark spells without anyone else finding out. If no one ever discovered Riddle in the room, he would have realized that he could only enter it by himself at the time. Perhaps he went so far as to assume that the Room of Requirement was like the Chamber of Secrets, a special Hogwarts room just for him. 
This assumption wouldn't be that far-fetched because if he never talked to anyone who knew about the Room of Requirement's history and past uses, it would just appear like a secret room that revealed itself for Riddle. Yeah, that, so, in, uh, so entitled. He thinks like <laughs> all these rooms in the castle are his. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about last week about how he's just so arrogant because he just thinks... Mm-hmm. He thinks he knows everything, but really he kind of doesn't know anything. <laughs> like, the real anything. Oh, yeah, because Tom never relied on anybody else. And kind mm-hmm. of the sad part about that is that he didn't have anybody to rely on early on. And True. when Dumbledore presented... And, I, you know, that's the part where Harry and and Tom are different, is that when Dumbledore... When, when, when they were both presented with authority figures, Tom rejected them, and Harry embrace them Mm -hmm. um so that's that's i think where that that issue comes from is that tom and he kind of you know that's been very much implied throughout the series that tom kind of just he got his little cronies around him and then he wandered around the school pretty much finding whatever he could find and deciding that it belonged to him which goes along perfectly with the you know what he was doing at the orphanage where he was taking things that weren't even his Mm -hmm. um So I mean, really, I guess when you think about it that way, he, he he in a way he had his own little room of requirement as far as the way where it's stuffed with things that belong to other people that were left there. Um, he kind of made his mm-hmm. own little room of requirement in his in his uh, dresser where he had where he kept all of those things that didn't belong to him. Mm-hmm. So. Wouldn't that be just the thing for him to wander into a room full of crap <laughs> that belongs to other people and be like, this is mine. It's all mine. <laughs> the castle made this for me. It's so <laughs> entitled. It's, yep. just, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yep, he's just but a brat. I, I like the point that gets made about how it's not only for good or bad wizards and, yeah. and they reference Draco and, and certainly the vanishing cabinets. If it, if it was made with the intent of being purely good, I don't think it would allow the vanishing cabinets to be utilized the way that mm-hmm. they were. And yeah, th- I think that's uh, that's a really good point that they make. Yeah. I, I kind of like this idea that it's, it's neutral. I feel like people see these books so much as they're, they're, there's, look, here's all the bad, here's all the black, and then here's all the good, that's all the white. Um, and they, they kind of just see them on this polar scale, but I like this idea of kind of finding these these neutral zones that really get back to this idea of choice that we see throughout of how it's how people choose to use it. Well, and maybe that impression comes from, you know, what we'll see later in this book in the upcoming chapters where Hogwarts defends itself against threats. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of that idea that, oh, Hogwarts knows who, who are, which people are bad and which people are good, um, cause it'll attack the bad people. The room of requirement, I think in book five, when it was properly introduced, was set up to be a room that could be used for good or ill. Yeah. I mean, Dumbledore needed mm-hmm. a, a bathroom, right? And yeah. He got yeah. one. And if you've, if you've been reading online, the, the Hogwarts IT guy, yeah. Oh my god! Which is amazing. So funny. <laughs> he needed a server room, and he got one. So clearly, they don't, they don't discriminate. By the way, Hogwarts IT guy, I want you on a little more. Yes. Before we're done. Please come on the show if you're listening. Fantastic. You're 
Our next comment comes from Snape's Mini Buttons. And they say, why wouldn't Voldy, who thinks the world should revolve around his precious self, think that all the junk in the Room of Requirement was generated just to hide his horcrux? I think the way Riddle found the room is echoed in the way Harry found it. Pacing the hallway, thinking of how he needed to play, how he needed a place to hide the potions book Horcrux, except instead of thinking of all the other people who had left items inside it, Voldy sees it as a room generated specifically to make his Horcrux impossible to find. It always bothered me that he would think he was the only one who knew where the the diadem was hidden when the room was so full of things but it makes a strange kind of sense that he'd think it was all generated for him he's definitely that egotistical mm-hmm. well yeah because harry too takes such when he sees that version of the room for the first time he really even though he's in a what's so interesting is harry's in more of a pressing panic than voldemort probably would have been to hide that diadem um mm-hmm. Because he's trying to hide that potions book and get back to Snape. But Harry does take the time to actually observe what's in the room. And he very quickly mm-hmm. realizes that these things belong to other people. Yeah. Um, yeah, like the crew from the past few movies who just put all their old props <laughs> in the room. All the leftover <laughs> props. That is kind of what ended up happening in part mm-hmm. two. Um, I love that, though. Because yeah. I love that you get these little little Easter eggs scattered throughout. Yeah, there. Yeah. When what's interesting is that, in a way, like it seems like pretty logical that some of the things in the movie that ended up there would like the the docks or the not the ducks the 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 cornish pixies and the yeah the mirror of error set i think can be seen in one scene and the chess pieces yes um, that yeah. does make sense random random thought i don't know if we've ever talked about this but do we think that sometimes when people vanish objects in hogwarts they go to the room of requirement and that could be why there's so much junk there so that there is no there's no ghost space for, yeah. For the vanished objects, it's just the room of requirement. It all just goes there. Hmm. Hmm. Never thought of that. Possibly. And our third comment comes from Lord Trolldemort. And they say, My first theory, he didn't mean to. It was another one of those Voldy mistakes. Imagine <laughs> the circumstances under which he would need to hide this Horcrux. He had just had his interview with Dumbledore. He's certain that his chances at the job were slim to none to begin with. Now is his one and only chance to hide the Horcrux, and he may or may not be caught doing so, because anyone could be up at this hour of the night, and we're all aware of how easy it is to wander in the castle after hours. (laughs) He he has to make his way to the intended spot quickly, silently, and entirely unnoticed. While I think that he would be fine with... Billing blood in order to keep his secrets hidden, I also know that he would think it to be an unnecessary cost. It's easier to hide an object than it is to hide an object in a body. <laughs> it would be too messy and unorganized oh to leave casualties, and thus his hand is forced and rushed. I believe that he intended to use the Chamber of Secrets as his hiding place, but he could not traver- transverse the entire castle in order to get there and could not chance anyone seeing him open to do so. Thus, he had to take a gamble and require that the room showed him an entrance to the Chamber of Secrets. Because of this, perhaps the room did morph into the chamber, or maybe a replica, thus convincing him that he had succeeded when in reality it was just the room of requirements still. Hiding in there, he had then departed the castle, believing his horcrux to be entirely safe. I think that... The clue is in his mental wording that he plumbed the darkest secrets of the castle, which is two cues to the chamber 
not the room of requirement. See, that implies that he hid it in a version of the room that is a different version, and I don't think you can do that. Um, yeah. That's pretty crazy. <clears throat> yeah. I don't, well, because the next, this chapter we're going to discuss and the chapter after it do, do bring up questions of exactly what the room's abilities are because of course we're going to see that it connect it can connect somewhere that it we probably never thought it could connect to Mm -hmm. um so i mean could it connect could it connect to other rooms in the castle who knows maybe could connect to the chamber chamber of secrets but mm, i i think that's like one isn't the room of requirement on a higher level yeah, yeah, it's at the top. It's at the top level. It's yeah, <laughs> yeah, all the way down. Wow. So it'd be a very exciting slide. Yeah, I was going to say insert slide here, and then I'm in the chamber of secrets. <laughs> well, well, yeah, it's. I mean, I maybe it just the room appeared to him as being the chamber of secrets, and so he thought that he had hidden it somewhere mm-hmm. within the chamber, but in fact, it was just in a pile in the room of requirement. Uh, and, and I will say that the, the first like four or five sentences of, of this is, is very troubling when you're talking about like moving objects and bodies and, and not getting caught. I'm just yeah. going to throw that out there, uh, Lord Trolldemort. A little too much personal experience, maybe. Uh, yeah. yeah. Maybe you need to lay off the, the criminal minds and the law and order <laughs> before your next email. There do seem to be a lot of dead bodies around Hogwarts, though. Mm-hmm. So, which Voldemort had was mainly responsible for. Truth. Mm. And I don't. I don't know because I don't. I'm just. I don't think that the room. I don't think that the room could appear as the Chamber of Secrets. Have Voldemort hide the the diadem in there, and then it actually be the other version of the room. I think when you put something in one version of the room, it stays in that version of the room. That's what I would assume anyway. I could be wrong though because I know we we had supposed that the books that the that the room provided in order of the phoenix for Dumbledore's army actually came from the other version of the room. And that it didn't just make the books out of nowhere. It was like, "Oh, well these are the books that I have as resources, so here you go." Maybe he didn't even enter the room. Maybe he just stood in the doorway, used the spell, and like put the diadem way back in a room. Yeah. That might have been faster. You know, <laughs> just stood at the edge. He's of the hurrying room. to just... get up to that appointment. They do <laughs> have magic there. He doesn't have to run all the way in the back of the He just stood by the doorway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, because it wasn't. Where did he? It was. It was just sitting somewhere, right? Like it wasn't. It, it wasn't anywhere significant. Harry put it on the bust, right? Or was it on the bust already? I don't remember. Maybe it was on the bust, and then Harry put the bust on the on the place where the where he'd put the book. I can't remember because that's Voldemort would have, I would assume, have put it somewhere in the room where he also thought it was going to be significant enough so that he could find it if he needed to find it again. Look, Rowling just needed a place in in Hogwarts that hadn't been used before, <laughs> where she could put a Horcrux that would have been easy enough for Harry to get to. Am I am I killing the mood? Yeah, lazy, lazy, lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Not good enough, Rowling. <laughs> Whatever happened yeah, to the graveyard? The the graveyard? Yeah, I thought that was going to play a role in, in at least the final book, but she never got around to it. 
Yeah, she also said the flying car was going to come back. What? I did not. I have never heard this. Yeah, she said in one interview. Oh, in the Meanwhile, she's out guys. there creating movies and <laughs> secondary books in her series. She can't even give us deliver on what she promised. <laughs> it's just never enough. It's going to be in that eighth book that's coming out this. That's right. <laughs> you know the prequel. <laughs> that's what the, that's what the prequel is going to be. That's what it's going to be all about. <laughs> all right. Well, if you guys have any more ideas of what has happened with Lord Voldemort in this room you can head on over to alohomora.mugglenut.com and add your words or join in in the conversation of what everybody else has put on there and while you're on our website make sure you check out our Patreon page we are on Patreon and you can become a sponsor of us for as little as $1 a month Um, and our post Howl plans are going to be up there weeks before we let everyone else know so go on up and sponsor us and you can know everything that's going to happen when we have finished the epilogue we should note too that um, our friends over at Speak Beastie um, the newest podcast on MuggleNet.com also have a Patreon page as well and again you can also sponsor them for as little as $1 a month so make sure and check them out too if you haven't yet um because if you're if you're like Micah and you've only just found out about Fantastic <laughs> Beasts and where to find them, you Micah, I definitely suggest you take a listen to Speak Beastie. Maybe I will. Are are they going to have me on on their podcast at least six <laughs> times? <laughs> I, just six. Never Is that seven. your requirement? <laughs> Always <Yeah>. seven. <laughs> only magical numbers. <laughs> That's well, right. And. Now, we head into our chapter discussion of Chapter 28. Chapter 28. Expect a The Missing Mirror. The trio returned to Hogsmeade, making a grand entrance with a trip of the caterwauling charm and sending the Death Eaters and Dementors into hot pursuit. Saved at the last possible moment by a goat Patronus, the Hog's Head Barman is finally revealed as Aberforth Dumbledore, Albus's long-hinted-at brother. Finally divulging the details behind Ariana Dumbledore's tragic past, Aberforth holds his deceased sister up as an example of why Harry should beware of Dumbledore's instructions. But Harry stands firm in his convictions, and seeing his d- determination, Aberforth and Ariana open the only access point that Hogwarts has left. So before we get into the real meat and potatoes of this chapter, <laughs> there's a few new points of magic that are introduced um, here. The first one, not really much to say about it, the caterwauling charm. It's, <laughs> it's a charm that screams at you if you set it off. It's basically an alarm system. <laughs> um, can, can we mention, though, that Harry says it sounds like Voldemort? Yeah. That... And I wonder if, like, you can, like, personalize it. Yeah, like, Voldemort recorded one of his screams. <laughs> that was a bad one. That was a bad one. Let me try again. Let me try again. <laughs> so we know what the sound was, of course. It was that nice, yeah! <laughs> Twelve e- times. Echoing through the mountains. I like it. That's a good one. Let's keep, it <laughs> keep it going. On a loop. Loop it. <laughs> Well, and it, I suppose the only probably it, that that's probably one of the most interesting points about the caterwauling charm in this case because the movie took the more literal meaning of caterwauling. Caterwaul means like the wailing and moaning of a cat, 
And mm-hmm. the movie did that. If you watch the movie, it's yeah. just this constant <laughs> sound effect. Repeating. Which Aberforth let out, and that was the whole reason that this chapter even had any alarm clocks going off anyway, right? I mean, <laughs> who's to say it was actually the charm? Maybe it was just the cat getting attacked. You don't know. <laughs> oh, gosh. Damn Death Eaters attacking the cat again. <laughs> so many cat references. How bizarre. <laughs> Um, other kind of important point of note with magic that's going on here the Death Eaters attempt to use Axio to summon um, Harry's cloak and it doesn't work hello <laughs> yep Nicely in case in- you were wondering still <laughs> in case you were still left in suspense about that um, just another little hint that yes the, that cloak is in fact the cloak um now, the interesting thing with the Dementors, and this is kind of something that we've supposed before, the Dementors actually say something that may not be off the mark, considering how off the mark they are in this chapter. Um, one of them shouts, The Dark Lord wants Potter's soul, or wants Potter's life, <laughs> not his soul. He'll be easier to kill if he's been kissed first. So, this is this goes back to that point we had wondered about, is this actually correct, perhaps? I would think so. Well, I would think so. Because whose soul is it taking? We, the, yeah, that's Ooh, just it. Yeah, that's it's true, too. Kind of wondering if... Because, I mean, by this... We, we've pondered that if a Dementor actually counts as one of those things, right? That That could destroy a Horcrux because it's such bizarre, extreme, unusual, irreversible magic. Um... So if the if the if the Dementor did suck out that soul, would it would it make Harry easier to kill, ostensibly, if he didn't have that piece of Voldemort in him? But of course, by that same token, does that also make Voldemort easier to kill? I would just file this under not so dumb things Death Eaters say in passing. <laughs> 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 not, How long is that list? <laughs> not, of course, by their own knowledge, though, right? So, right. it's not, not like they know what they're saying. Um, yeah, part of me wonders if that if that would even work. If it's easy, if it would be easier to kill someone who's been kissed, just because. I wonder if it would either make you go to, like, survival instincts, or you just wouldn't care. I feel like that could go either way. I assume that they kind of become, like, a living vegetable. You know? Yeah. Which is a very real kind of thing, listeners, that that has happened to people, where it's basically the idea that you've lost your... You've lost... You you may be able to open your eyes, and, you know, that's kind of the extent of what you can do. Yeah, I would I would say that if that would make you easier to kill, because you're just kind of... You just exist. Of course, the um, probably most unusual piece of magic that's introduced in this chapter, and we'll get to talking about Ariana herself, because she is... She is the meat and potatoes of this chapter. But uh, Ariana's portrait does something we've definitely never seen before. Not only can she she go to another portrait by traveling into the depth of her portrait, um, she doesn't leave by the sides. She turns around and travels back into her portrait. But she also brings a living being in her portrait. Um, 
which is bizarre because as we see at the end of the chapter Neville is Neville as we know is coming through the passageway with her but he's portrayed in the painting which to me that doesn't there I don't know where that even comes from any ideas I want to know if this passage (laughs) (laughs) perfect that's it there you go I want to know if this passage has always been there like has her portrait always been this way or did one day Aberforth just, like, looked up at the portrait and he was like, why is there a tunnel behind her now? Like, <laughs> what is happening? I assume... Didn't they make the tunnel? Yeah, I know, I... I know Neville asks for a way to get food, so it gives him the tunnel, like, in the room of requirement side. But I wonder if it just, like, connected it? Was this tunnel going somewhere else at first? Did it just... Beer. I'm. I'm really I mean, was the picture because maybe the picture was always there? So yeah, a great a place to connect to. I think it was always there, but I just mm-hmm. this tunnel well, behind the room it. knew that picture was there, so yeah, it was easy access. Well, Naberforth mentions all of the other um, entryways through secret passageways that have been blocked, mm-hmm. and Harry knows that. You, Harry knows through the Marauders map which ones were already brock, blocked previously, um, and I'm wondering if this, because there there is, I think Harry notes that there are other passageways that lead off to Hogsmeade, um, but they don't they're blocked in Prisoner. I wonder yeah. if one of those is that passageway. But what a bizarre way that it works that you can only get it if you ask the room for that passageway why would it have been there anyway um so yeah that and it's just weird to me too that the that neville while he's walking through the passageway can be portrayed in the painting because we've never seen that before either yeah where life can actually be portrayed in real time as a part of the portrait um i don't understand how that works at all yeah i go with my first answer again it's magic so, I mean, we know that Ariana's portrait is kind of unusual in this way, mm-hmm. but, and I'm assuming that Neville is not conscious that he is being, that he's also being portrayed in the artwork. Like, he's not walking with Ariana in reality, right? I don't think so. I don't think so, no. I, I feel like it's almost like a mirror. Yeah, like so. Or not a mirror, a window, see, sorry. He really is coming down. Like, whoever's in the room can actually see who is coming down the the tunnel. So it's, it's almost like a security. Yeah, it's like a security <laughs> defense mechanism. So maybe that's mm-hmm. another piece that's been developed by the by the necessity of the room and being safe mm-hmm. within the room. Yeah. Huh. So the room's breaking magical rules, I guess, is what I'm going to go with. It still won't give you food just in the room. <laughs> I mean, it's helping protect hogwarts yeah i guess somehow but of course we get into the more uh hefty details of this chapter and i i I thought we should start with aberforth um because uh he's pretty darn important we've been waiting to see him for a long time and aberforth was one aberforth was another one of those like uh regulus that a lot of people actually figured out beforehand um and we've kind of been mapping out the clues as we've gone th- through the reread of the series. Uh, I kind of recalled back to a few that I 
could remember off the top of my head. Of course, um, Dumbledore mentions that he is friendly with the Hogsmeade barman. Um, the uh, scene in Half-Blood Prince that we saw where uh, Mundungus is accosted by an individual before he is accosted by Harry <laughs> is the scene where, and that that is confirmed here because my, uh, Aberforth does say that he bought the mirror about a year ago. Um, so that is indeed the the scene, um, and that is what he's doing in that scene. And, of course, the big one, uh, the Patronus that comes charging down the lane when the second Patronus is cast is, in fact, a goat. And who could that possibly be? Who have we heard who has such an affinity with goats? Um, so that's where the confirmation... All the clues came together um, kind of beautifully in this part. I'd say this is one of the more satisfying, actually, of the reveals from the books with we 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 all saw this one coming but it it fits together very nicely Mm -hmm. um probably the only flaw that we have pointed out before is that the text very much points out that (laughs) aberforth and albus pretty much look exactly the same (laughs) (laughs) and how on earth did they never notice that yeah harry's unobservant well apparently (laughs) because he's looked him straight in the face multiple times um, including Order of the Phoenix, when he sees quite a bit of a- Aberforth um, when they go into the Hogshead, and the movie took that almost movie took that to an extreme because actually Hermione and Ron say when they get to the Hogshead they, they say yeah. that they thought he was Dumbledore. Um, so, uh, and I always thought it would have been fun. I was a little. I thought it was actually kind of funny that they cast another actor. Forever. Instead of just having Michael Gambon play him, <laughs> I thought that would have been kind of cool. It was kind of eerie how close they were able to get Kieran Hines to look to, like yeah. to look like Michael Gambon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like a more stout version of Dumbledore, basically in the movie. Speaking of goats, though, this is a random thought. <laughs> Micah, one of the first episodes of Mugglecast I ever listened to is the one where you went off about the goats. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez! <laughs> I thought we may get through this episode without it being brought up, but clearly Sorry. not. Now, quite honestly, though, I I don't remember what I said all those years ago about the goats. I just know that there was a lot of talk about how Aberforth has an affinity for this animal, and I, I will tell you, back in the the Mugglecast days, the amount of emails and the amount of things that were sent to the P.O. box that were related to goats was unbelievable. I have somebody who handcrafted a goat figure who lived in Africa and sent it over here. That is amazing. I don't know where it is. It's it's boxed up somewhere, but I'm happy to try and find it at some point and, and send it to you so you can see this, but yeah, it, it really just took on a life of its own. It, uh, there's no other way to, to, to describe it, but yeah, th- I think it was just having fun and making light of the, the Aberforth goat, uh, <laughs> love fest. <laughs> well, and I have a piece on the goats. 
I was going to say it here, but I'm actually going to save it for the end because this chapter is very heavy. And so yeah. I think what we need at the end is a little bit of this goat okay. business because it's just so absurd. <laughs> so, she just like keeps harping on these goats. <laughs> and Rowling provided the closest thing that she could to an answer. And we'll, oh, good. we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> but to, to go back to Aberforth and, and specifically kind of this moment, there are some very... What I love about Aberforth is he's kind of, he's, he presents this bizarre kind of final challenge, almost. Um, and <clears throat> Allison, I'm hoping you can speak more to this, because you seem to know more about the Bible than I do, by quite a bit. And <laughs> I feel that there's a lot go- of that going on here, because um, Aberforth throughout this chapter is kind of testing Harry because what's interesting is that Aberforth con- contrary to what he says and I'll read a few of his quotes that he says um, one of the big things that he says is the order of the phoenix is finished you know who's won it's over and anyone who's pretending difference kidding themselves and he's, and in relation to that Aberforth says um, many things about when Harry's saying that he has to do this this task. Aberforth says, got to? Why got to? He's dead, isn't he? Said Aberforth roughly. Let it go before you follow him. Save yourself. How can you be sure, Potter, that my brother wasn't more interested in the greater good than in you? How can you be sure you aren't dispensable just like my sister? Why didn't he tell Harry to hide then? Shot back Aberforth. Why didn't he say to him, take care of yourself, here's how to survive? And yet, it would seem that this whole time, Aberforth has happily been in communication with the Order of the Phoenix, and he has also been in communication with Dumbledore's army and helping them. Mm-hmm. How? So what I've always been interested in in this chapter, and what I'm interested to see what you guys think, does Aberforth necessarily fully believe what he is saying, or is he partially saying this with the intention of challenging Harry? And seeing where Harry has come to by this point. Mm-hmm. I I don't think he believes it, but I don't think he necessarily is challenging Harry either. I feel like he's he's there's still a part of him that believes they can win, but I think he's seen enough and experienced enough that he's kind of just fallen into this it doesn't matter anymore. He may I feel like he may believe it just a little bit towards Harry because Harry is still a kid because he's yeah. referring back to like his little sister. So he's still thinking of Harry as a little kid. Like, go hide while you can. Mm. You're young. Let let the order face this. Well, there that's true. There is definitely a part where Harry makes clear that he, in a way... He's of age. Now. Yeah, he's yeah. of age and mm-hmm. that the comparison to Ariana isn't fair mm-hmm. because he's like you said, of age, and perhaps also a little more aware of what's going on than Ariana was. Um, he's not an innocent. I think there's a bit of a challenge uh, that mm-hmm. that is going on here. Uh, but I also think maybe Aberforth sees a bit of what's happened in the past in what's happening right now with Harry, mm-hmm. and he's afraid for him maybe in a way that he was afraid for his brother, even though he doesn't outwardly admit it at this at this juncture of of the story and i also think he's in a tough place because 
he's just lost really the the only other living family member that he has mm-hmm. and i i think that would put anybody in a really down and and sort of depressed state the way that he is right now and and i don't know if we ever get the full picture for how he truly feels about uh albus but it would seem to me that you know he he saw him try and f- fight for what he believed in for so long a period of time and ultimately at the end of the day he I guess it depends how you look at it to say that he failed at it but I think he's in part afraid uh, Mm -hmm. in this moment that's interesting because that kind of makes me think of um, how we perhaps as readers sometimes forget that for all of the strife and difficulties between them um, Petunia and Lily were sisters, despite all their differences. And the movie has that wonderful deleted scene from part one where Petunia kind of re- reminds Harry that as difficult as it was to be her sister's sister, she did love her in some form. Um, and that perhaps there's, the, I think that's that's kind of the, uh, like you said, Micah, that's kind of the unspoken thing going on here, is that Aberforth is not saying anything nice about Albus, but he did love him. Um, And that's perhaps what... I I like that you brought up, too, that there's... In a way, he has the same fear for Harry that he did for Dumbledore. Because there's a lot of comparisons between Dumbledore and Harry throughout this moment, too. It's almost as if he's continuing on Dumbledore's quest. Mm -hmm. And, And... Yeah. Aberforth has seen so many casualties most importantly his sister which we get to later on in this chapter mm-hmm. and I just think that there's there's something inside of him that just wants this all to come to an end but yet he's still the same guy who opened up his door and let Harry Ron and Hermione in and at the end of this chapter ends up helping them in their cause so mm-hmm. It's, it's there's there's more than just the goats going on inside the guy's head. <laughs> well, and so perhaps in a way, what he's saying to Harry is maybe the things that he wished he could have said to Dumbledore. To some yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, well, and I, Allison, I I I was kind of thinking about this in terms of it being a challenge because this reminds me of a lot of biblical characters who are challenged on their faith in God. Um, near, you know, kind of in in a pivotal role in their journey and kind of what they're being asked by God to do. Um, like Abraham, Moses, pretty much almost Harry. all of them. Harry. <laughs> 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 and I was kind of wondering if that's where this is coming from because I know... I, I can't... I kind of noticed something similar. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of any specific examples. Um that would really parallel this. Like, I'm, I'm not quite sure if she was drawing on something specifically. Um, but this is kind of a really common motif that comes from, I mean, you see it a lot, like you said, through the Bible, but also just through literature in general, that this, at the 11th hour, this, this, this sudden questioning of the faith in the mentor, um, in the person who kind of put you on the path, um, yeah, I, w- I was really noticing that too, that 
Harry really has to come to this decision right now of, is he going to trust Dumbledore or is he going to let kind of his doubts overcome what he thought was best? Um, and I think this is, obviously, it's it's really the moment where he says, no, I'm just going to keep trusting. And I don't know everything, but I'm just going to keep trusting, which is a very, I mean, it's basically the definition of faith, right? Mm-hmm. Um and he, uh, this line where he just says he has no desire to doubt again. He just says, well, I'm in it this far. I'm going to make this decision now, and I'm not going to go back on it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I can definitely see those kind of the parallels of that that idea through there. Well, and, of course, I, I bring up the biblical parallel because, as Rowling has admitted, that um, she was very much inspired by this, particularly the story of Jesus Christ in this. Yeah. In Harry's kind of final lap of his journey um so that idea that you know because of course that also happens in jesus's story i was of course referencing pieces of the old testament and jesus is in the new testament but um the idea that jesus was also kind of tested in his faith in in god and in what god was asking him to do um and uh and as you mentioned allison uh harry's Harry's counters to to Aberforth, um, he initially is kind of mulling things over. He says it's a, the narration says Harry kept quiet. He did not want to express the doubts and uncertainties about Dumbledore that had riddled him for months now. But as we go on, we see that evolution in Harry's thinking. Um, he had decided to continue along the winding, dangerous path indicated for him by Albus Dumbledore to accept that he had not been told everything that he wanted to know but simply to trust. He had no desire to doubt again. And Harry kind of wraps up his convictions by saying something that's definitely, I think, worth discussing. Sometimes you've got to think about more than your own safety. Sometimes you've got to think about the greater good. This is war. And Very Gryffindor. Yes. But my hasn't the greater good come around? Um... Again, and done a bit of a 180, I suppose. Um, does the greater good has the greater good evolved? Does it mean something different? Is this is this greater good something different than what Dumbledore's greater good was when he was younger? I think so. Um, <clears throat> talking about this is uh, I'm taking a Shakespeare class right now mm-hmm. to kind of veer in a strange direction, but. <laughs> We were talking about Macbeth the other day, um, and we were talking about this idea of ambition. And when is ambition a good thing, and when is it a bad thing? Um, And I feel like this is kind of a similar thing that, depending on which direction you take it and how you take it, the greater good can be a good thing, or it can be a really destructive thing. Um, So if you take it the way that Grindelwald wanted to take it, it, it becomes a very destructive, oppressive thing, kind of just a justification for um, evil. But if you take it the way that Harry's seeing it right now, it's there's something that needs to be saved that's worth saving, that's worth more than an individual life. Mm, But as as Aberforth points out, um, is it all right for individual lives to be sacrificed for that cause? Because, of course, he is specifically referencing his sister, but he is also pointing out the fact that people are about to die if Harry makes, based on Harry's decision. 
Is that okay? I I think that that it comes to the conclusion. I mean, throughout this um, throughout this chapter, Harry thinks about he talks about how he knows that this has been a possibility. He knows that his death is a very likely possibility, actually. And I think Harry has finally weighed the options and said, sacrificing myself, if we can save other people, if we can save the future, if we can save our world, it is worth more than me. Which, he, I mean, he, he acts on it in a couple chapters, right? He He's come to this decision. He's kind of come to the decision that I think he saw Dumbledore make, that sometimes you have to make sacrifices in order to reach this goal that's going to be you have to decide that goal is something worth saving well and we've you know as far as the knowing that other people in this situation will also die um perhaps that goes back to when in in the early chapters when in in the seven potters when all of the order made clear that they weren't doing this for harry yeah in a way they were kind of referencing the greater good without actually using that term so it's it's not the first time that the greater good has been used in a different sense we're we're redefining perhaps what the greater good means um and there's a good chance that people would die anyway yeah Yeah. you know it it's sort of really one-dimensional to think that we're just talking about one life here whether or not harry makes the decision to give himself up there there's the very real possibility that other people are going to die at the hands of voldemort at the hands of death eaters regardless of what harry decides to do whether he's in the equation or not these are not nice people that are going to let everyone live happily ever after these are people who really pride themselves on tormenting other individuals mm-hmm so death is a consequence either way, no matter what. Yeah. In this case, I think so. When you're when, given who we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's almost making inevitable death worth something. Yes, versus running away from it. Yeah. Because the other thing this conversation reminds me a lot of is the conversation that Harry had in the previous book with Dumbledore. This is almost that conversation coming up again. And kind of cementing Harry's choice because this is the this is very similar to the prophecy conversation, where Harry's kind of like, "Well, I have to do it because the prophecy said so," and Dumbledore says, "No, you have to do it because that's who you are, and that's the you know that that's the right choice, and you can choose to do the other thing, but that's wrong, and you would you would never do that." Um, so that's kind of that being presented again. Yeah, I feel like that that conversation in Half-Blood is Harry coming to understand that point. This is him acting on that point. Mm -hmm. Which again is why I just wondered if there, while while I do believe Aberforth fully believes all the things he's saying, why I just can't help but wonder if there was an element of testing Harry's resolve. And the movie really plays up that aspect. Kieran Hines pretty much performed it that way um and it i think it has to come over that way in the movie because of course we lose all of the backstory so pretty much everything aberforth says to harry in the movie makes no sense um it's just kind of ramblings of an old man unfortunately um and you get that line from 
isn't it Hermione who says that doesn't seem like somebody that's given up to me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or I'm paraphrasing, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, and I, so I think yeah. that in and of itself lends you to believe that it was more of a of, of a test on the part of Aberforth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just seems like that again that that test of faith that you get before leaping into the into the battle, um, which in this case it seems to literally be. The other interesting thing about Aberforth in this moment is that he is compared to somebody else who we haven't heard about for a while, and it happens twice that this description of him occurs. Uh, first on page 561, the narration says, The firelight made the grimy lenses of Aberforth's glasses momentarily opaque, a bright flat white, and Harry remembered the blind eyes of the giant spider, Aragog. And that similar description comes up again later on 566. And it says, His eyes were briefly occluded by the firelight on the lenses of his glasses. They shone white and blind again. Okay, why? This Rereading this again, it, this has bugged me every time I've read it. I can't figure out why she's comparing Aberforth to Aragog. I literally have no clue. <laughs> well, hmm. Aragog, I guess in a way, also serves right perhaps as that as that test in chamber, and he's also he's not only a test of the kind of the final test before the ending because Aragog gives them the last bit of information that they need, Sans Hermione and the pipes, um, but Aragog gives the big crucial piece, which is Moaning Myrtle, um, but not only that. Aragog also te- Aragog the, their faith is being tested in chamber not in Dumbledore but in Hagrid. So there's also another test of faith and a character who is very closely connected to that character whose faith we're not sure about right now. Okay. Maybe I might be stretching it too much. Maybe there's another point of comparison there. Maybe he just looks like Aragog. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh yes, I forgot that line where he's described as having six other arms in addition. <laughs> and Harry. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just I. They're just talking about eyes, not <laughs> just body. yes, a million other eyes yeah. all over his face. Well, and you know the the what is I guess okay. So so both descriptions kind of hearken to the idea that Aberforth is blind. What is what is it in relation to that Aberforth is blind about? The importance of what Harry has to do, or maybe even just Harry's mission in general. Ooh, that's interesting. That's yeah. not what I because that's not what I thought. But why? 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 Like, why do you say that, Allison? I, I just think the way this whole conversation they have—it sounds like Aberforth doesn't know that Harry actually has a chance at this. That he's got a shot at destroying Voldemort if he can get these last couple of pieces. And, I mean, it's kind of, it's this idea of anyone outside of Harry's very immediate group at this moment is blind to what he's doing, what he's done, and what he can do. Mm. And so, I mean, if we go back to he's kind of setting him a test, he's, he's testing him to see, okay, is Harry really serious about completing this? enough that he will kind of go against someone who doesn't know what he's doing. Um, 
who's offering legitimate reasons why he shouldn't do it. Yeah, because my interpretation of the blindness comes more from what we're going to talk about next, and that's Ariana. I always assume that the blindness was in reference to the fact that Ariana's death perhaps has blinded Aberforth's perception of Albus. Oh. And seeing his, his seeing Albus as nothing more than this puppet master who let people die for the greater good. But since you know, since I mentioned Ariana, let's let's go to her because this is this is the as I said, the meat and potatoes of this chapter, and we finally get the reveal of Ariana and her story through Aberforth. And what we essentially find out is that Rita Skeeter got a few things right, but she got a lot of things catastrophically wrong. Um, surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. Yes, that's, ne- <laughs> that's never happened before. Um, so Ariana is revealed to not have been kind of this Rita Skeeter has has made Ariana to be this out uh, to be this thing that the the family um actually that they abused her um mm-hmm. and that they that she was a victim of the family but what actually happened was Ariana was attacked by three muggle boys because they saw her doing magic and they tried to make her do it again and what's a kind of unnerving bit here is the only description Aberforth will give about what happened is he says, they got a bit carried away trying to stop the little freak doing it. And Hermione and Ron have pretty violent reactions to that. Um, what, you know, I don't want to put ideas out there because I want to see what you guys thought. But what do you think they did? Nobody wants to say it. (laughs) You can think it's like the worst thing. Yeah, it's it can be interpreted so many ways, Mm -hmm. and I think it doesn't give you the age. Yeah, that's what freaks me out. She was six, right? She was six, but it doesn't say how old um, the The Muggle boys are. The Muggle boys are, yeah. I I think it's safe to assume. uh, Yeah, it it, it's sort of a, a difficult topic to discuss mm-hmm. uh, but I, I mean I, I think we can we can assume that she was abused in some way mm-hmm. by these three boys mm-hmm. uh, to the point where it completely disrupted her ability to to function uh, as uh, what would be considered uh, normal and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's highly disturbing and and we of course, learn that uh, Aberforth's and, and Albus's father uh, went after these three muggles, and, and that was the reason why he was put uh, in jail. And uh, I, I think there's probably not a person here that, or really anywhere, that would have faulted a father for going after uh, it, people who assaulted their, their daughter or their son, or, you know, it, it's. It's really you, you really start to learn about the the tragic elements of this family in this chapter. I know there's there, there's moments in in the book previously, but you really start to get a full understanding of of what has happened to this family. I mean, because I think a lot of times what happens in, in like you have a character like Albus Dumbledore who you put up on such a a high pedestal and you, you there's you think there's nothing could possibly be 
it, wrong is probably not the right word, but you know, you just think of him as like this idyllic character where his family is great, everything's great. But then you start to learn more and more and more about his past and and his family, and you start to realize that you know the, the Dumbledores had had problems just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and Aberforth goes deeper into Ariana's condition and explains kind of what happened to her. And Kristen, I'm really glad you're here um, because, uh, mm-hmm. like me, you have worked with a lot of individuals with disabilities. Um, so I think this will be really um, good to talk about with uh, with you here as well. Um, and it's, it's uh, Aberforth says that it destroyed her what they did. She was never right again. She wouldn't use magic, but she couldn't get rid of it. Turned inward and drove her mad. It exploded out of her when she couldn't control it, and at times she was strange and dangerous, but mostly she was sweet and scared and harmless. If the Ministry had known what Ariana had become, she'd have been locked up in St. Mungo's for good. They'd have seen her as a serious threat to the international statute of secrecy, unbalanced like she was, with magic exploding out of her at moments when she couldn't keep it in any longer. So... I have to say, and I will, on a personal level, I was shocked reading this because this is almost a perfect summary of my brother, who has autism. Um, And my brother Charlie, who I mentioned on the show before, is on the lower spectrum of autism. He is not Asperger's, so he's not very, he's not talkative or social very, very often. He has a lot of sensory issues. And, um... This is the life that my my family lived. Um, this this story is very similar to my my family's story. And Kristen, I'm hoping you can speak to this more because I have had listeners tell me that I should be careful about equating Ariana's condition with autism. Um, but I don't see the harm in that. Actually, the the only thing because as I. As I reread it, mm-hmm. um, as I find it more along the lines, like I, I understand what you're saying. Like this paragraph right here, um, I do see like, oh, you know, that sudden out, outburst, like kids who have autism have these outbursts that just happen. And um, most of the time they can be very sweet and harmless and everything like that, but they will have these outbursts. But reading the whole chapter in itself and her it almost kind of sounds like a PTSD mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of having that that traumatic um, event happen in her life, and then just bottling it up inside and not being able to, you know, like here you'd have like a therapist and groups and stuff like that to help you deal with what has happened in the past, um, or high anxiety, like I mean, which could also you know be PTSD. Um, but I don't think it's wrong at all to compare it to autism because, like you said, you have that personal experience. So do I because I work with kids mm-hmm. um, who have it. And this this paragraph right here is definitely and it and I guess the the same with society. Like they had to keep her in a house. Mm-hmm where no one could see her or anything like that. And I could see that as, you know, associating that with autism or anybody with any kind of disability of people thinking they have to be shut in and nobody can be there um, to see it and everything like that. Yeah, I was I was going to say that's, that's, I think, one of the most important points about Ariana's story as a whole. 
And Micah, what you were saying about how this shows that even a family with a member as great as Albus had so much chaos in their lives and had so much dysfunction, I think is important because, you know, we... the thing that the the thing that's interesting to me about individuals with disabilities is and Kristen and I have discussed this before when actually when we were when we were last in um, Florida at at the Wizarding World about how there's you can kind of look at the world in a way that and listeners try this if you've never done it before just just idly to yourself maybe in 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 a day view the world as if everybody around you has a disability and you'll realize that everybody even people who would happily call themselves quote-unquote normal have some very interesting quirks about them um but they consider themselves to be to not be disabled despite their quirks and what aberforth is talking about here the the line that strikes me the most is what he says about how she would have been shut up in St. Mungo's, probably put in the same ward that Neville's parents are on. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my parents were told when they di- when Charlie was diagnosed with autism back in the early 90s, they were told that they should just um, institutionalize him immediately and not even bother with trying to teach him anything or treating him normally. That hurts my heart. And the mm-hmm. saddest thing is that people are still told this today um, about mm-hmm. individuals with disabilities all the time um, because our society has developed from a place into a, into a, into a place where we, we prefer to not see individuals with disabilities because they're socially different than us and they rock our social world a little too much. Um, they have behaviors that we don't find nor like normal or acceptable or common um and so it's better to just put it away and uh i don't know how many looks i get from a kid in a store having a complete meltdown mm -hmm. and they just think oh that's a horrible woman she's just standing by watching well he wants a toy i said no he's gonna have a meltdown and he'll calm down eventually he'll realize he can't have it but people the looks and people coming up and it, it's ridiculous how some people act mm-hmm. unfortunately well i still i remember still here's an, a wonderful example of how society kind of an organized institution in society handles this because i remember my dad told me about how then this was years ago and disney has changed disney constantly changes their policies on how to deal with individuals with disabilities but my brother actually had a meltdown in the middle of disney world and my dad was alone with my brother, and he kind of just had to let Charlie go through the meltdown. And my dad said that he so distinctly remembers that a group of Disney cast members kind of just surrounded him and kind of blocked them from view um, so that other people couldn't see him. Mm. And they didn't offer help. They didn't really do anything. They just kind of very subtly blocked them from view. And by the other side of that coin... When my when my brother was uh, at Disney with my dad, he um, Charlie wanted to meet the guy. He wanted to meet Quasimodo because Quasimodo was nearby, and Charlie sees a lot of relationships. He sees a lot of himself in Quasimodo, and um, the the Quasimodo noticed that Charlie was standing away from the group, 
and um, didn't seem to be comfortable talking to the other around the other children. So Quasimodo went up to him and gave him a high five and talked to him for a little bit. And I know that the Disney cast members who play the characters there are, are excellently trained, actually, in um, dealing with individuals with special needs. And they give them a lot of um, extra attention. They talk to them really well. They kind of pick up on their body language and mannerisms um, so they know what they're comfortable with and uncomfortable with. So it's there's, you know, people and things in this world that are so good at dealing with individuals with disabilities and people who are so bad mm-hmm. in it. And it's interesting in the magical community you know, in a, that Rowling introduces this idea that we have a community where ostensibly everything can be fixed, but it can't. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and Ariana is a victim of that. Ariana is one of those people who's shut away because of the consequence that would happen if she would almost definitely be taken away from her family. Mm-hmm. Um and sadly, Kendra Dumbledore is a victim of that. We we learn a little bit about more about her. Rita portrays Kendra as kind of the um, leader of this abuse upon Ariana. And that's wrong, completely. Interestingly, Aberforth seems to be a little titchy when discussing his mother. He says, first, the, his first mention of Kendra in this chapter is he says, I knew my brother Potter. He learned secrecy at our mother's knee. Secrets and lies, that's how we grew up. But we kind of come to see that he doesn't necessarily mean that in the way that it comes off as. Um, He says later on about Ariana, we had to keep her safe and quiet. We moved house, put it about that she was ill, and my mother looked after her and tried to keep her calm and happy. And tragically, Kendra actually dies in one of Ariana's unintended fits of rage. Um, I'll tell you too, listeners, um, that my parents experienced quite a bit of abuse at the hands of my brother, as did I, um, in his rages. My mother actually had a piece of her thumb bitten off by my brother. So, yeah. So, and just another, you know, that's in, in the family with autism and lower spectrum, you kind of learn to take those things in stride, bizarrely. Um, it's just the day-to-day life. Um. It's always fun going in. For a, for a human bite. Yep. <laughs> you always get weird looks from the doctors. I've gone a few times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's... it's What I loved about this piece, though, because it so surprised me that this was where Rowling went. I wasn't expecting this to be Ariana's story at all um, when it was revealed. Mm-hmm. And what so surprised yeah. me is that there's this element of... This isn't... This... Having gone through a lot of programs for people who are in training to advocate for individuals with disabilities. This is an advocate. This is advocating for individuals with disabilities. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, where, where I, I have my answers for this, but I'm interested to see what you guys think about why this is introduced now and where it might come from, from rolling. Part part of me wonders if she has any firsthand experience in anything like this, but I, I mean, I honestly don't know, nor is it like any of my business, but, it, that would be very interesting to me. Well, didn't her mother have multiple sclerosis? She did, didn't she? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder, so when was she writing this? Mid-2000s? Oh, Deathly Hallows? It came out in 2007, yeah. 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 So you got to think what, you know, our... Because, I mean, autism has been around for a long time, but it's just been e- increasing as of lately. And um, so maybe... 
our society as a whole. She's seen more about disabilities and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the stigma of it, yeah, um, in our society, maybe it, it, it increased at that time, or you know, something. Yeah, I, I feel like lines. I feel like I mean, this may have been more recently. Um, I'm not sure how far back this goes, but I feel like these kind of issues have been people have been more open about them um, in order to increase awareness and to kind of correct these stigmas Mm -hmm. that have cropped up about them. So I wonder if she just kind of had noticed that trend and not trend, but you know what I mean? (laughs) No, no. Yeah. That, that, that element that's pervaded our culture and how we, yeah. Yeah. And how we view individuals with disabilities and how we care for them. Because of course, Rowling Mm -hmm. is also, also set up um, her charity Lumos. Um, which serves to mm-hmm. take care of children of all backgrounds who have kind of been put in institutions that not proper care, um, mm-hmm. whatever that may be. And did she suffer from anxiety at all? She suffered from depression. Yeah. I know depression. Uh, it, anxiety uh, usually goes hand in hand. With yeah, depression. I was going to say, they, yeah. they kind of go together, so yeah. it won't surprise That's me. I don't know if she's publicly said that or not, but I mean, this in itself, too could be a form you know of something maybe she has Mm -hmm. dealt with maybe not to the extreme that this is but i mean people with anxiety have their own kind of attacks Mm -hmm. well and and you know and that's what i'll make clear here is by talking about my brother and about charlie and my experiences with him i in no way mean that that ariana's condition is definitively autism i kind of I'm, i'm hoping to kind of get across to what you're saying uh, Kristen, that this this is a Ariana is a parallel for any disability, mm-hmm. um, and that you know by the the I think what's important about Ariana's story and why I'm compelled by this to share, you know, my story with Charlie is that the the biggest the the most important thing I think in this that element of this story is that um, and I saw this you know me and my family saw this as members of the community with individuals with autism and my my parents were both nurses and my dad worked extensively with the autism community is that um the families do what the dumbledores did the families hole up and they don't talk to other people you'll even find that a lot of families don't talk to other families with individuals with disabilities Mm -hmm. because every family feels like their situation is not possibly mirrored by the situations of others and that they must they must be doing something wrong or they are going through something that other people couldn't understand and um i think that's the most important thing about ariana's story as micah said um that anybody can be affected by chaos in their lives and mm-hmm. and dysfunction in their family and i think in fact everybody is but we are in a society we tend to be in a social society mm-hmm. setup where people are discouraged to talk to and and encouraged not to talk about bizarre happenings in their family. And And one other thing that, that I would add to is, uh, you know, around the time that she would have been writing Deathly Hallows, she would have had two young children. Mm -hmm. And I would think that on some level that would play into her decision to write about this. I, I, I'm not sure what, 
experiences she had outside of of you know you had mentioned her work with Lumos and and the children's high level group but uh, it it seems like it it would be something that she would want to call attention to and that she would mm-hmm. think is important and uh, you know it uh, there's so many things throughout the course of the series that are more adult themes uh, and I'm sure you've talked about them um on on this podcast mm-hmm. um you know even going back to you, you referenced sort of the parallels between the rise of Voldemort and the rise of Hitler earlier in the show but but those types of things are there and they're there for a reason and yes this this could be considered a, a children's series and it, and it is by many people but i think you know the reason why we're sitting here having these discussions is that it goes so far beyond that because there are so many things you know within the subtext that you can call attention to and you can have deeper discussions on and i and i think this is one of those things yeah absolutely yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, it's a, and it, it, it's just it was surprising to me because I just found so many parallels to my life in this story, and I wasn't expecting to have that from this story. Um, and it's not to say too that this there wasn't a lead up to this because Rowling has addressed individuals with disabilities in previous Potter books. Um, I think one of the big examples that I mentioned earlier was Neville's parents are kind of a shining example of that as well. Um, mm-hmm. and we get, we get more examples through the books, but, um, this is, this is kind of where all of that comes to a head and where I think what's so good about this too is I think this also encourages the idea that magic perhaps isn't even going to be the solution to the end of the story. Um, that there's something more human that's going to end Voldemort and Harry's story rather than the wave of a wand necessarily being the only factor. Um, And all of Ariana's story also leads up to kind of the final discussion point here, which is about Albus Dumbledore himself. And uh, first of all, Aberforth asks Harry um, very pointedly, think you knew Albus better than I did? And... Do you think he did? Do you think Harry might have some knowledge about Dumbledore that is worthwhile that Al- that Aberforth didn't know? Pig for slaughter. <laughs> I feel like he knew it, but forgot it um, through everything with Ariana, through their estrangement. Um, but I feel like it might have taken Harry reminding him of that to see it again and for Aberforth to come in during the last battle and decide that maybe his brother was working towards something that was worthwhile. That's kind of where I was thinking. And that's exactly where I think the descriptions of blindness come from. Um, Mm -hmm. That he's been so blinded by the experience with Ariana that he forgot who he, he perhaps stopped seeing Dumbledore as he was and only remembered him as he was when he was a, a boy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that kind of never saw his growth from that. And of course, we know that the, the piece of the crucial piece of information that perhaps, you know, opens Aberforth's eyes is that Harry reveals what he believes Dumbledore was seeing the night that he drank the potion yeah. um, in Half-Blood Prince, which is, and Rowling has confirmed that that is what she thinks Dumbledore saw. 
um, which is that his family was being tortured, um, probably by Grindelwald, and that Dumbledore was trying to stop it, and he couldn't. Um, that's kind of where the that's kind of the big reveal of that. Um, and interestingly, uh, the other point that Aberforth makes is he says, "If one young girl got neglected, what did that matter?" when Albus was working for the greater good. And with all of these reveals about Dumbledore, I find it interesting that the fandom, there is still a huge chunk of the fandom that is still so angry at Dumbledore. Is that anger merited? And is it so one-sided that Dumbledore really was just the puppet master or was there, and that Ariana was a victim of that puppet mastery or is there more to it than that? That's a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> well, now's the time to answer it because Dumbledore's pretty much other than when he appears and gives his answers, his magical answers for everything. <laughs> this is kind of his. I feel like this is the key moment of belief in Dumbledore and how people feel about Dumbledore. I think that it it just proves that he's fallible and that yeah. he can make mistakes and. He again going back to. He's not what we thought he was through these first couple of books. At least, you know, like I said, you put him up on a pedestal because he's you know this this, this prototypical mentor that is going. He's to... not Gandalf. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's probably a whole other discussion. <laughs> <laughs> But he's he's the ultimate teacher, and you, just the way that Rowling writes him up until we get to Deathly Hallows, you you believe in him, and and you believe in his cause, and you believe in what he's doing, and that he's taking Harry in the right direction, and and yet here you are in in this chapter, you're you're learning about the truth, you're learning about his family, you're learning about his own desire for power, his own quest for power, and and how he ultimately fell short of it and because he fell short of it came to realize that he needed to change what he was doing and and he did and you know now harry is is his way to really rid the world of, of the evil that has surfaced over these these last several years and it's not going to be easy it's not going to be clean and I think he puts a lot of, of, of trust in, in his ability to create this plan in the hopes that it works out. Because, quite honestly, there are a lot of things that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's with with uh, with this kind of issue, because I, I lay on I'm more on the side of that Dumbledore, he made mistakes, but overall he did the right thing. Um and that I don't really have that ill will towards him because, like you were saying, Micah, there was so much that could have gone wrong. And it's kind of – Dumbledore in, in his own way is kind of – his portrait kind of admits like, yeah, I, I was pretty sure it was going to go right. But I wasn't completely <laughs> So I'm glad it did. Um, and, you know, I, I think what's – what I think the part that gets passed over about both Dumbledore and Aberforth – that's again very important to me and i i i know the listener, listeners have mentioned in the comments they're like oh michael we know it's michael talking because he's doing another personal anecdote and, <laughs> and i want to make sure listeners that i i 
clarify that I don't do personal anecdotes just because I like talking about myself, which I do, but also because, you know, I hope that you out there who are listening might be, you know, encouraged to share your own stories in some way that you don't share, because I think that's what's so important about this particular chapter, is that a lot of what went unsaid between Aberforth and Albus about Ariana was important to have been said. It was cathartic. It's clearly important that Aberforth gets this out. Um, and the thing that they, the, 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 the thing that really strikes me about Albus in this story is that he had to make him and Aberforth had to make one of the most difficult decisions that I think a lot of siblings of individuals with disabilities have to make, which is do you, do you give up your life for your sibling and give your life wholly to your sibling? Or do you depart from your sibling's life to some degree, whatever that may be, to to go live your own life? Um, and I can speak to that as a very recent experience because I have just moved away from my family after living with them for 26 years, and now I am living an entire state away in Austin, Texas. Um and my family called me in the first few weeks kind of with things like, what do we do? There are things that you were good at, you were really good at with Charlie that we don't have the same rapport with with him. Um, and that's, you know, I think the challenge that a lot more people face than perhaps is known um, in families. It's, 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 it's a deal with, it's an ordeal with separating with any family. But I, um, I cite specifically individuals with disabilities because that's, I, that's why I don't hold so much against Albus because he made an incredibly difficult choice and he recognized he didn't recognize in himself early on that he was not a good caretaker for Ariana um, but he tried and Al Aberforth even casually admits that he actually did a pretty good job until Grindelwald showed up but in that same moment Dumbledore recognized that there was perhaps not only hope for his sister through what Grindelwald was advertising, but also kind of hope for a life of his own that he hadn't had before. And that's something that a lot of siblings with, with individuals with disabilities, they all come, we all come to that realization at some point that mm -hmm. eventually we're going to all have, we're going to have to leave the nest. And do we, do we go have a life of our own or do we give our life up to our families? Um, and it's a very, it's one of the most difficult choices um, we have to make. Um, so I think it's it's important to consider that when you when you reflect on your feelings, listeners, about Dumbledore. Um, but that's why I feel that way about Dumbledore and why I don't hold as much against him as I think a lot of people do. There's still a lot of people I've seen in the fandom who say that Dumbledore did put Ariana on the chopping block, and I don't think that's fair. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I don't think that was the intention. So how does everybody feel about Dumbledore now? I still, I feel like at the beginning he was a little bit more puppet mastery. Mm -hmm. um, more to the fact that like he knew things were happening and chose not to step in mm -hmm. in the first few books. But I think as the series progressed, things got out of hand and he really was just trying to do what was best. Um, and kind of gave himself over to that cause. So, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Like, I mm -hmm. I can see his flaws, but I don't dislike him necessarily. Well, I think that goes in hand with what Micah said, which is that just because Dumbledore was fallible, that doesn't necessarily make him a bad person. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he's a bad person. I just don't like everything he's done later on in life. Mm-hmm. Like with Harry and how he dealt with Harry the whole time. But, I mean, I completely agree with you on the fact that, you know, he he had to drop everything to take care of, you know, his family, which is a great attribute. Mm-hmm. But he's still not my favorite. <laughs> Some people have... The... And my dogs agree. <laughs> Some people have that gift for working with uh, with individuals with disabilities, and some of them do not. Um, and True. So, and it's important <laughs> to recognize that. So. so after all that heaviness, here's a little treat for you all. Let's talk about the goat before we're done. Because <laughs> the goat. Micah, I'm sure you've probably read this before. Um... But Rowling addressed the goat in... Uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> what goat? What are you talking about? What goat? In, Carn- <laughs> in her Carnegie Hall chat in 2007 after Deathly Hallows was published, and she got a question. I was there. You were there. So you heard this, probably <laughs> full on. So the question was... In the Goblet of Fire, Dumbledore said his brother was prosecuted for practicing inappropriate charms. And it says here that Rowling buried her head as everybody started laughing um, on a goat. What were the inappropriate charms he was practicing on that goat? Rowling asked, how old are you? Which pretty much sums up the answer to the question already. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The the questioner replied, eight. (laughs) So Rowling said... I think that he was trying to make a goat that was easy to keep clean. Curly horns. <laughs> That's a joke that works on a couple of levels. I really like Aberforth and his goats. But you know Aberforth having this strange fondness for goats if you've read book seven came in really useful to Harry later on because a goat is stag, you know. If you're a stupid death eater, what's the difference? So that is my answer to you. <laughs> and... That's all she had to say on the goats. Micah, <laughs> after all of these years, what is your response? I think the dog speaks for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. It, it was really interesting was I think the Dumbledore question came right after that. Yeah. Uh, so uh-huh. you got a lot of information on the Dumbledore family in a very uh, short period of time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, <laughs> let, let, let the uh, speaking continue it you know what it's funny that you bring that up because i actually uh i i did a little bit of a search on my part too and and try to find some of the older transcripts from Mugglecast that that referenced uh the goats in aberforth and <laughs> i happened to come across what i'm assuming is is one of our april uh fool's day episodes and um <laughs> I'll, I'll just read it and hopefully uh like you said we can end on a much uh much lighter note. Uh, this was from one of the news segments. It was episode 140. Uh, and it says, And finally, the younger brother of world-renowned wizard Albus Dumbledore was arrested earlier this week outside the Hogshead for his involvement in an underground illegal goat trafficking ring. <laughs> Madame Rose Merta noticed an alarming number of goats walking limply around Hogsmeade one afternoon <laughs> and decided to alert the ministry. It was later discovered that the goats, who failed to show Aberforth considerable attention, 
were fated to enter an outside pen, which served as a holding area until they were taken underground at night and had various charms performed on them. <laughs> the ministry seized what looked to be plans for an underground goat fighting league. A rather, a rather irritated Aberforth said it was his way of showing them, quote, tough love, and the animals spoke to him in a way humans never could. Head cannon accepted. <laughs> goat, uh, goat fight club. Fighting league. <laughs> <laughs> Rule number one about goat fight club: you don't meh about goat. Fight club. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's so corny. <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> And that's definitely what she intended with the writing. That is the that is the light, lightest way we can possibly end mm-hmm. with chapter 28, The Missing Mirror. Which, funnily enough, we didn't even talk about the mirror. By the way, Aberforth had the mirror. It's a stupid mirror. It's even dumber <laughs> in the movie. It's a mirror. <laughs> Deus Ex Mirror. Wait, there's a mirror? <laughs> he and Dobby were BFFs. Yep. Yeah, they were. He loved goats and uh, <laughs> house elves. No, no. And and the house elves? Did he make Dobby yeah. ride the goat around the uh, <laughs> hog's head? No, he just again, Dobby. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and dive into this week's podcast question of the week. And our question to you is. This is the chapter where the final pieces of Dumbledore's story come to light, thanks to candid reveals by Aberforth. Aberforth and Harry represent the two extremes of belief in Dumbledore. Was he a puppet master, sacrificing lives for the greater good? Or did Dumbledore and the meeting of the greater good evolve into something more enlightened? How has your personal view of Dumbledore evolved from your initial read to now? You can head on over to our main site at alohomore.mugglenet.com and respond to this question. I look forward to hearing or reading your responses. And we want to make sure and thank our wonderful guest six times over, gunning for a seventh, Mr. Micah Tannenbaum. Micah, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, I had a great time. So uh, if you want to slot me in for a seventh... uh... (laughs) podcast before you officially go off I, I don't know what you are you guys going off here what, what's the plan am I, am I spoiling something breaking news well if you donate to patreon you can find oh, out okay. a little early well, about that you got you got a dollar in your pocket <laughs> <laughs> but we we thank you very much Micah we know of course all joking aside you are uh behemoth in the harry potter fandom world you've done a lot for harry potter fandom and so we're so honored that you you were able to come not once but six times on onto the show and <laughs> like i said gunning for a seventh we'll see if we can make that work out for yeah, you see before. what you can do talk to some people <laughs> yes i'll pull some strings i'll see i'll see just what like dumbledore manage yep i'm a puppet master too and if you want to be on the show just like Micah. Then do your own podcast, and then maybe you can, we'll invite you on. <laughs> okay. But we do have spots available. So go to our Be On The Show page at alohomora.mugglenet.com. If you've got a basic set of headphones, you are all set. You don't need any fancy equipment. And we look forward to hearing from you. 
And if you want to stay in touch with us, there's a lot of ways to do that. None by owl, interestingly enough. But we do have um, a – you can find us on Twitter, at AlohamoreMN, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash OpenTheDumbledore, our Tumblr, MN Alohomora Podcast, our Instagram, AlohamoraMN, obviously our main website, alohamora.mugglenet.com, where you can leave comments on the show as well as explore the forums uh, where there's a lot of discussion going on. Uh, you can also download a ringtone for free while you're hanging out on the website. And uh, you can also send us an audio boom to alohomora.mugglenet.com. On the main website, you'll see the little widget for audio boom. Oh, Kristen's like, but there is a way to use an owl. <laughs> <laughs> you can owl us on audio boom. <laughs> I still don't think I, I figured out what an audio boom is. I think I've asked this on other uh, episodes, but it'll remain a mystery to me. I know the the kids with their technology today. Yeah, right? and you know what's interesting? Where I, I assume you're saying that they need to keep the audio boom under sixty seconds. Yes, that's perfect. I, I thought the note was for you to keep the entire contact section under sixty seconds. <laughs> Say it as fast as you can. Just yeah. rattle them off. That warning is specifically for Michael and Eric. <laughs> nope, yeah. Nobody else. <laughs> but yes, actually, listeners, please do keep your audio boom under 60 seconds so that we can feature them on the show and while you're over on our main site don't forget to check out our store because we sell stuff we sell stuff what do you what do you guys sell stuff stuff Stuff, apparently stuff we have t-shirts and tote bags and stuff and stuff and pretty much more stuff i've been on this show six times i have not gotten a shirt a bag a sandal wow uh, That's because you have to go to our main site and pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get free swag until you're on seven times. <laughs> That's why he wants to be on seven times so bad. <laughs> Once you hit that seventh, I will personally give you a tote bag. But he, he wants a sandal, just, not not sandals. He wants, he wants just a sandal. one sandal. <laughs> one sandal. <Okay. laughs> Done. We'll pull some strings. We'll talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get you that sandal. <laughs> but you know what you can get for free? You can get our smartphone. Clearly nothing. <laughs> no, you can. You can get our smartphone app for free. If you just search podcast source in your phone's app store, you will find our little app, and then you will find us with all our awesome bonus features, including this week, um, hopefully an extra listener comment that we discussed a little bit. Well, we're going to head on back to Hogwarts. I'm Allison Sigurd. I'm Michael Harley. And I'm Kristen Keyes. Thank you for listening to episode 179 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledores. Kind of worry that the listeners are they're going to be like, no, of course not. Yeah. Why would he do? Yeah. That? <laughs> and that would be kind of the. Oh my god. That's such a stupid <laughs> question. Ow. <laughs> that question is so. Ew.